latest episode of the Brushwilders Union podcast. I'm your host and general president of the Brushwilders Union, Simon Berman. This month, I am joined by Byron Ord, founder of Artist Opus and Element Games. Byron's here to talk about their paintbrushes, their new Kickstarter, um, every cool stuff that Artist Opus does. I've been using their brushes for a few months now. They make great stuff, and I'm really excited to talk about all this. Byron, thanks for joining me. Hey, you're welcome, mate. That was uh, that was super slick. Sorry that this is slightly later than it was meant to be due to my inability to uh, to do time zones. Oh no, it's 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 all good. And uh, you know, um, I'm actually I think the time is great. You know, you guys launched the Kickstarter uh, just yesterday for yeah. your uh, display cabinets for miniatures, uh, which are very cool. I've never seen anything like them before, uh, so I'm stoked to see it. I'm, I I just opened up the page and I see it's gone up five hundred dollars since the last time I looked at it. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're really really pleased with it. It was a uh... Uh, a bit of something new for us. We don't tend to rush anything as a company. Um, like Series D, I spent five years working on. Oh, wow. Didn't spend quite that long on. Uh, <laughs> didn't spend quite that long on these, but uh, they've been a good couple of years in the making, and um, it's very very exciting to bring something out there, and it's something really different for us as well. Um, selfishly, as quite a lot of our things are, we had a need that we couldn't we couldn't fit, so we've uh, we've gone out there and tried to handle all of it ourselves. Very cool. Yeah, and I think you're, uh, the, the demand's there. I mean, you funded in, what, five minutes? Yeah, yeah, we did, um, which is uh, which is lovely. Um, the We've had a few questions about Kickstarter, and I, I do absolutely get why people would ask uh, why an existing company would use it, but there's quite a few things here. Like, we've sent out some prototypes to people, and they are pretty much what we would be expecting the final thing to look like, you know, holistically, as, as a blob. That doesn't sound very complimentary, but as a thing, <laughs> they look pretty much as they should. But um, we've got some stuff that if we get to a certain level, it would unlock us being able to look at in terms of customization of the electrics and stuff like that. Um, so Kickstarter made a lot of sense for us. We've not done one for four years. Um, a lot's happened since then as well. So we, yeah. <laughs> we, we launched it with a, a probably a fairly sensible and common degree of trepidation for any company that's made its way through the last few years. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, your your initial funding goal is, I believe, ten thousand pounds, about eleven thousand dollars, and you're currently at uh, let's see, what does that look? Ninety two thousand one hundred and fifty one pounds, or one hundred and four thousand eight hundred and seven dollars. So, clearly, you're doing something right. Yeah, hopefully, we're uh, we're really really pleased with it, and also the um, people are engaging in such a lovely way, which is really it's just nice. Uh, you know, yeah, like we we it's a very unique format Kickstarter. Um, I'm sure people listening to the podcast are, are very, very familiar with it. But the fact that you get to interact with your customers and they can make suggestions and stuff is absolutely one of the reasons that we wanted to do it like that. Um, we've already been bombarded with 700 things that we could have been more clear about and 700 more that we, we've we considered the majority of. But some of them are actually like pretty solid suggestions. Sure. Um, and they are being read, taken on board, and maybe even tested or prototyped. Uh, now behind the scenes so very cool the, uh, the lovely unique things about it. it's kind of like youtube like getting yeah. to, to interact no, I, with the users i'd love to talk more about uh, some of the details on that but um you know for our listeners who may not be familiar with the uh the, the kickstarter uh, it'll be linked in the show notes of course so if you're listening to this look down below on the website there were page you're looking through and you can look right through it there but uh why don't we talk a little bit about artist opus um what it is you guys make and what exactly you're making with this new Kickstarter. I know it's display cabinets. I'm backing it myself, but people who may not be familiar may want to hear about it for the first time. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, anyone out there who's tried to find a house for their mandolies is probably like, you, you're going to meet basically Ikea 
on the one hand, which is like you know, yep. like it's 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 affordable, it's everywhere in the down world, um, and you can put stuff in it. Um, or you're going to meet some kind of like bespoke solution that if you're not particularly hands-on might not end up looking how you would like. Sure. And, um, one of the major reasons that we embarked on this is that um, like I, one of my, I love the hobby, like absolutely love the hobby. I've been in it for decades. I've met some of my best friends through it. Um, it's taught me a huge amount. It's, it's been one of the most significant things in my life by a by a huge degree. And one of the things I find particularly vexing about it on a daily basis still, not much annoys me after this long uh, working in the industry, but something that still really gets to me is the degree of shame that some people have about it or the way that it is spoken about by others. And I'm a great believer that people will behave in the way that you kind of set out for them to behave and putting mm-hmm. your miniatures in a ugly house and then hiding it in the ugliest room in your house yeah just just didn't feel right at all on any level whatsoever like if you're going to put your heart and soul into something whether it's your first mini or like your seven thousandth mini or your Ankel Giraldes or you're someone who just loves getting contrast on stuff efficiently and boshing it out um like you're still proud of that thing and you spent time on it and you had trials and tribulations and maybe you learned something really significant about painting or you know life if we're going to get really deep um whilst doing so and we wanted to give miniatures the best possible chance at being basically being put in lounges or living rooms or places that weren't basements or hobby corners um of course you can put them in hobby corners and they'll look wonderful but um we wanted something where if your other half isn't into the hobby they would be like yeah sure you know put that there in the same room that the tv is and you know we've got art on the wall or or whatever it is that you're Mm -hmm. into and in no way that uh, kind of is uh, is demeaning to the hobby. Essentially, that's a little bit long winded, but that was that was the that was the intent for it. Um, practically, we just wanted something that would work. You know, that was dust tight, that had its own lighting. I'm not practical. I'm very good at making mistakes, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I can't build something like that. We wanted something beautiful that you wanted to touch and hold, and that was bomb proof. Um, and um you know let light get to your miniatures that's a really important part of it that i think probably we didn't describe accurately enough and we're now adding to the kickstarter is the sizes and dimensions of the cabinets are really carefully thought out so particularly the um for like the the squares like there is nowhere in those squares that light can't reach to miniatures obviously miniatures can block miniatures but um everything there is really lit and um, I've already said that, you know, uh, like I've been in the hobby for a long, long time and you get slightly inured to new products or new things or new experiences because less of them happen. But um, the first time that I popped some of my just solid tabletop level minis in one, I was like, oh, you know, they're, they're kind of nice. I'm quite proud of those. Yeah. <laughs> remember painting them. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that was that was the intent. You're like practical. Uh, it doesn't take up floor space. Like we don't all have massive 2000 square foot basements i was chatting about one of my american buddies before we recorded i definitely don't have that much space so not taking up floor space um was a a really important thing for us as well to be able to mount them at whatever height is best wherever is best whatever orientation is best whatever size suits your level engagement in the hobby um so yeah that was that was the thinking behind the kickstarter at least yeah i mean i I think it's it's a great um Great new alternative, you know, because historically I've, I've used the uh, the IKEA the, um, the glass Dead shelf off. display. Dead off, yeah, of course. Um, I have four of them, um, and they're good, you know. And 
I'm happy enough with them. But I, I feel like one of the things I commonly see in the hobby is, you know, somebody posts a uh, picture of a disastrous dead off uh, catastrophe where, you know, the shelves have collapsed. And almost every time I've seen that happen, it's because somebody put a third party additional shelf in there. And there's the noise when the door opens, which is like the which is pretty scary. Yeah. Um, but you know, as you said, the, the Deadals, they, they do have a big floor, uh, footprint, don't they? You know, it's, it's, 14 it's a whole bookshelf. inches square, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really cool. You have these sort of hanging, it, it's, it's like wall art, right? It's turning your miniatures into wall art. Um, and even better, they're, they're internally illuminated. That's the thing that blew me away the first time I looked at the pictures was that you have this, this lighting system that's integral to each one of them. Right. So can we talk about that a little bit? Cause I think, I think it's, it's awesome. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, I've never seen anything like it before. That, you're doing very good hosting. You're, you're filling all of my gaps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> British euphemism starting already. Right. So, um, yeah, there's a, a lighting strip that runs all the way around it. It is uh, 6,000 lumens, I think, which is basically like dead on neutral just before light gets blue. Um, and that is, uh, there's like, uh, like an angled uh, engrave into the cabinet's and the light points backwards towards the miniatures. So it's the least obstructed way we could put something in that was fairly bright, have it not viewable from the most angles. Like it's, it's very difficult to see it yourself and have it lighting all of your miniatures or as many of them as possible at uh, the best angle possible. So that's kind of hidden secretly within the frame just behind the front door, so to speak. No, it, it's, it's very cool. Um, and it's sort of a, a gentle like white light yeah yeah well it's yeah it's as as neutral as we could possibly get i don't know how many people listening will be into nerding out about um about this stuff but yeah you might be surprised um, yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it never it never ceases to amaze me just how informed people can be about this obscure stuff but as one of those people who will end up on like a, a three-hour youtube hole that ends up with learning how to like oil a skillet that I'll never use or something. Uh -huh. I do understand fully how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I think it's, 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 it's crazy with the lights been a really big success and a really big draw to the Kickstarter. Um, so you have the, the external, the, the length and width obviously are, are pretty um, customizable and you, you also have the depth, right? So if I wanted to have say a tank on my wall, you know, I've got a new Land Raider or whatever. Am I going to be able to do that through one of these cases or is it just for the smaller miniatures? No, absolutely. So you can bump the depth uh, three times internally and uh, that will help to accommodate, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to put your Bane Blade in there like front to back at an angle, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you can fit pretty much all but the very largest miniatures in. I mean, I say that miniatures are getting less minute to day by day it's true um, but it will hold <laughs> it will hold a uh, it will hold a lot of miniatures maybe not squidmar's owl but um it'll hold it'll hold a uh, a large amount of the larger miniatures yeah that's um, cool. we've also thought fairly carefully about the shelving so if you want to have like i mean people people's armies tend to tell stories right so if you want to have your dude whoever that is who's leading your force in the middle and they're a bit larger we've got uh, three different shelf designs currently we may add to that people making suggestions as we speak uh, that will allow you to put like something big with a spear in centrally or just a larger model centrally and then have the uh, tray above that model behind it and recessed and kind of sticking out to its left and right so there's a uh, either one that sticks out with a peninsula in the middle or the exact negative of that um, and has two peninsulas at the side so you can kind of work it around to whatever formation will fit your particular selection of dudes in uh, in the ever more varied poses that people seem to have minis in. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's really awesome. 
Um, and whatever the depth is, how, what, what is the mounting system like? How do, how do I mount it to the wall? So hidden, again, you know, there's, there's plenty of things we could have been more clear about. A lot of the questions we've got um, are because we've tried to keep the design so minimal. Like we've made as beautiful things as we possibly could, but the main event is, of course, the miniatures that are in them. So the front door, which is magnetized on, um, which again was a common question. Um, so you pull the magnetized door off and there's four holes in the cabinet in the corners, which go all the way through the frame and have pretty... Uh, pretty solid heavy duty fixings in them that you can put into raw plugs in the walls. Um, so that's all hidden within the frame itself and you can screw it in like that. Um, and then when you put your, you just clip your magnetized frame on, which is dust tight by the way, um, all of that's hidden. Um, and it, it gives, you know, your stuff's going to be secure basically, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is fairly important, you know, given the value or the time that's going to be in these or both. Yeah, sure. Um, so the internal shelving and the, the the mounting. Say I have a collection of older metal miniatures. Is that going to be an issue? Nah, you're absolutely fine. These are um, I probably shouldn't word it like this, but they're completely over engineered. Like they are absolutely bomb proof. Um, yeah. Me and you know several of our staff could probably stand on one of these, and it just it wouldn't care. Nor would you know, let's say yeah. Andy Waddle's Techless, who's been put inside it. Like they are really, really, really tough as a result of how they're made, which is just from layers and layers and layers, um, which is also how we've kind of got the uh, the rounded finish on the corners and that slightly Scandinavian aesthetic. Yeah, I think they really are very beautiful. Um, and they come in a single finish right now? So the if you're talking about the outsides of the box, I'm making hand gestures here, which is incredibly unhelpful. If you're talking <laughs> about the, the outsides of them, um, yes, uh, a single finish, because that's, um, that is the side on, that is the naked layers of the wood. Um, that we've used to craft them on the front so the front door um the frame that goes around that like a glasses frame we can veneer uh, any number of veneers onto that so oh, if cool. you are in like a mahogany ish colored room or it's black wood or it's white or anything like that we can give you as many options as possible to get you as close as possible as matching existing furnishings or just you know personal taste or aesthetics whatever yeah, it is that yeah. you like I mean, people could buy them plain and stain them themselves as well. There's absolutely no reason um, not to do that. It's high quality wood, so, you know, you can stain it and it'll look wonderful or sand it or, I mean, do more brave things with lasers if you're, sure. uh, if you're so inclined, <laughs> which I wouldn't be. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so what is the, how, how are the actual pieces um, produced? Is it, is it, is it laser cutting or do you, is it more sort of traditional, um, you know, uh, carpentry? So it's, it begins with a CNC. Um, where they're all cut out, just these um, these like layers and layers of the, when they're produced, it looks like a like a beehive or something. But it's just these um, just these nested uh, cubes that are in each other. Um, for the sake of example, they're all taken out and then they are layered on top of each other, um, glued, clamped extremely securely, left to dry, and then pass. Well, basically past the CNC, everything is really old fashioned, like yeah. incredibly old fashioned, like hand tightened clamps um you know oiling um we use hand sanders and stuff like that um electric ones so we've not gone quite old school with that because there's a pretty large volume on there but it's um it's lovingly cherished by hand for pretty much every single step beyond the, cool. uh, the cutting out of it so the cnc is like the heart and then everything else is just old school yeah so you know it sounds like a labor intensive process you know how, how do you how do you foresee you're going to scale up to meet your uh, your all the, the hundreds of rewards you already have to make for this Kickstarter? 
so we um we didn't launch this until we were at least uh ready insofar as capable of making every single aspect of it and had made it because my god there's been a lot of prototypes so um, yeah. <laughs> we've got a uh we've got a fully outfitted workshop facility and in there is uh the staff uh who have got a lot of experience working with wood um fully trained you know they're full-time staff this is their full-time occupation um and uh, we've been testing out this stuff for quite a while there's a chance that we'll need to look at expanding capabilities for maybe the shipping aspect sure um, but luckily uh, my other business is fairly well experienced at sending out a lot of packages and um also like logistically the uk is kind of a dream um for being close to airports wherever you are because the country's tiny yeah, yeah. So, um we've uh, we've got plenty of uh, plenty of motorways like five minutes away and airports 15 minutes away and all of that stuff so we should be i mean we used kickstarter as well so we're getting as much information ahead of time as possible so we should be able to take all the knowledge we've got already times it by the amount of popularity that we've had it's not a great way of describing it is it good words um and then we're uh, we're not predicting any uh, any massive bumps in the road, although given the world climate, you know, we're, right? I mean, that was <laughs> not something point. we should be saying, is it? Yeah, <laughs> that's really tempting fate. But uh, <laughs> regardless, be, you're feeling pretty good about your June 2023 delivery date. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, we're um, we'd much rather put out something skeptical and meet or exceed people's expectations. So, absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um. No, that's awesome. So, you know, I, I was sort of wondering, you know, one of the things I've always liked about Artist Opus is you have those really lovely um, cases that your, br- your brush sets come in. Did this sort of, was this an, a growth out of that at all? Absolutely. So, yeah, we've we've been outfitting and tooling and recruiting for and training staff for the workshop for a good while now. And I feel that this is probably the most distilled version of what we're capable of that we have put out in the public eye so far. Um, so we got really good at making boxes. Uh, we yeah. brought that in-house while the world was completely upside down. We actually had a, you know, lockdown was selfishly, lockdown was wonderful in terms of new people starting the hobby and mm-hmm. new people wanting to learn new things or take up crafts or stuff like that. But it was really um, a really difficult time business and supply wise. And we'd always had a slightly romantic dream of bringing as much as possible in house. So um, when things started getting wobbly, we really seriously looked at the situation and we just started practicing and training and making our own boxes. And uh, we did that for a fair while, kind of behind the scenes, made loads of mistakes. And uh, then we got, uh, once we got a little bit better at it, we, we put them out there and um, they're, um, they're just so much more consistent now. They've, they've all been made by humans who want to produce perfect stuff. And um, I think it, it's probably fairly tangible to anyone that got the old boxes and has since seen or touched or received a new one, hopefully, at least. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, I, the attention to detail and quality of all of your products is, is really impressed me, as I was saying. Um, you know, I, I got a, a set of your uh, brushes back at Adepticon this year. Um, I've been, I'm using them to, I'm going to, have to re- replace one or two of them. I've used them so much, uh, which is not a testament to the length of the brushes, but I painted a lot of miniatures this year. I was actually impressed with how well they've held up through the, the hundreds of miniatures I've painted since March. Um, that's a, that's lovely to hear. What are your, what are your paints of preference? Because I think this is a somewhat interesting topic and I don't think people realize how much paint has changed in the last couple of decades. What, what do you lean towards paint wise? Uh, these days I have a very heavy, uh, Citadel collection, but I also have a lot of, um, uh, 
Predator press P3s. Yeah. So you're, you're probably amongst the least hardcore of paints on brushes there. Um, the way that I tend to phrase this to people is basically if you're using a layer paint, which PP essentially is as well, um, all the all the old classics there, um, it, they're, they're like if you're talking Citadel, they're all layers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, none of them is particularly incredibly abusive, apart from metallics, which isn't in use to anyone. But any right. paints that have been formulated to be, and there's there's a million ways of saying it: base, foundation, heavy body. You know. Um, like cut stuff to do with coverage. Anything that's got that in the name is a slightly more hardcore paint on brushes. And this is before we even get to, you know, contrast or stuff like that. So paint has only got more um more hardcore as time has gone on and as painting has got easier for people because all of these things are trying to get paint to do the strangest things possible as fast as possible or reliably as possible. So um you're using an alright pair of ranges there. Um, as far as it goes, but it does depend how much you like contrast or washes. Sure, yeah, I, I use a fair amount of washes. I, you know, I, I do some other things too. Um, like I said, I, I, I've done some oil washing, which obviously I don't do with uh, with uh, sable brushes. But um, yeah, by and large, it's P three and Citadel for me, with a little bit of Vallejo um, and other things here and there. Um, what are your favorite I mean, colors? What are my favorite. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, whew, what are my go tos? I use a lot of Cantor blue. Okay. Uh, that's my. I've got that literally to my right on a uh, on a tinch wing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have a I have a Crimson Fist Force for forty k. So I be I became very familiar with Cantor blue a few years ago, and I just I find it's when I'm looking for a, a deeper um, blue or even some, even a base for some blacks occasionally. I've I've, I've mixed in some Cantor yeah. blue. How do you find jumping between the finish of PP and the finish of Citadel? Citadel being a little bit more. A little bit more satiny, isn't it? How do you? Yeah, I, I, that satiny is definitely the word for it. Um, I tend to use my P3s as bases these days. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Although you know they they have some really unique colors too. So um, I did a whole bunch. I did a force of uh, Necromunda Orlocks a couple of years ago, and I used their uh, Gravedigger denim as my uh, my denim blue color for them, which was very good. And I, I used that as my base, um, but I did highlight up with it. And I think I mixed it in with some some P, uh, citadels as well yeah and uh, it all it all worked pretty well together sometimes it just works jumping between brands and sometimes you look at your paint job and you're like what why does that look worse than i think it is or yeah right <laughs> 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 it's yeah, never a nice question to ask is it or like an odd semi-gloss in a spot because you used a different paint there yeah you also get yeah. that there's something like if you if you layer multiple times um the way that pigments work you end up settling things within gaps within gaps within gaps within gaps and you get a more uniform surface by the end of it. So even if you didn't start off with something that's satin, you can end with it. And I spent so long wondering why all of my glazed shadows looked more glossy than pretty much the same paints that were on their raised areas. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it was that. Wild. So uh, let me go back to you. Um, what kind of paints do you like to use these days? I use, I use everything. Um, I am I am using some secret paints currently, which aren't too secret, but we're working on some pretty special stuff. Oh. Um, they are lovely. Of course, I'm going to say that though, but uh, <laughs> they are absolutely wonderful. I use a lot of Citadel. Um, Vallejo, Citadel, I use bits and pieces from Scale. Um, Same with I me. tend to avoid, uh, I tend to avoid ultra matte paints um, because of how it behaves with stippling and dry brushing, which is obviously an absolutely massive crutch 
or keystone depending on how honest you're being sure um in my painting <laughs> and um if you start off matte like i don't know if you've used mccrag blue versus cantor blue like mccrag blue is incredibly matte by yeah. citadel standards like yep. unbelievably so it's a complete anomaly within their range and if you try and put a layered highlight over cantor and it's a normal citadel paint it will just go down fine if you try and put a layered highlight over mccrag blue it just doesn't want to behave um so more and more in recent times i've kind of lent towards stuff that will behave kind of predictably and not give me any any upsets because the other the other constraint is if i screw up and i was recording it feels a lot worse than if i screw up and i was on my own a lot of the sure. do get you know they get left in the videos and then i have to try and fix them but sometimes right. do something awful and <laughs> it just <Yeah>. feels dreadful <laughs> Right. So uh, as far as your personal style of painting, do you do you tend towards like Citadel's edge highlighting? Do you do a lot of wet blending? I know you, you guys have sort of created this this dry brushing with the Series D, which you were very kind to send me a setup, which I admit I have not yet played with, but is on the, my short list of things to do in the next couple of weeks. I'm very excited to do it. Grab yourself a uh, grab yourself something textured like a feathery wing. I would really recommend that or terrain and um, just sit down with the objective of having fun and trying something weird and fully com commit to it. And you'll... Um, you might be super surprised at the end result. Yeah, my, my plan, actually, I have a whole bunch of um, 13th century medieval terrain to do um, for uh, oh, the Baron's War. Like, and absolutely I was thinking that would be the place to try it out. Yeah, so that's that's my, once I finish this Horus Heresy army, which I'm getting there with, um, my end of the year treat to myself is to paint out just a buttload of, uh, of hovels and Norman churches and so forth. And the D-Series is definitely what I'm going to reach for for that. Oh, dude, that would be amazing. If you tried the Dirty Down products, I've heard about them, but I haven't yet. Oh, it's worth worth giving a go. If you want to make stuff mossy at the bottom and old and depressing, um, they're wonderful, and they are they are truly unique in terms of you you just blob them down, and from blobbing them down in in like uh, in in recesses where they're more deep and on raised areas where they're more shallow, and then putting water over them, you get this huge natural looking because it is natural variation in finish i think they're kind yeah. of play based i could well be wrong on that though interesting would know better but they are completely unique and absolute hoot and also you know fairly uncontrollable in that way that's kind of fun where yeah like, well you know what what will happen will happen i'm pretty happy with my thing and i hope this doesn't make it any worse uh, yeah they are, <laughs> they are wonderful and for that type of aesthetic down. yeah combining those right. two would be absolutely great Hit you for some tips on that, but let's let's, let's talk about your brushes. I appreciate that you're talking about a, another product. Oh, that's all good, dude. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's absolutely fine. What was the question again? I got distracted by. Uh, how do you paint? And you know what goes into with your Series D stuff? That that paint style and um, okay, you know, so when you pick up a model, what what is your approach? Uh, speed. It's just always speed. Um, I do enjoy taking my time, um, but I really like that full feedback loop of getting something done in a session and um it, people always seem to think it's weird when i say this but i don't get much time to hobby like especially for myself like barely any um so i put a fair deal of pressure on myself of making sure that there is a result at the end of it um so it's it's always with a mind to kind of absolutely obsessive sequential painting and um efficiency and getting an end result and the kind of the pillar stones of that would be I've got an airbrush, love my airbrush. People think because I teach about dry brushing and say you don't need an airbrush, it means I've got something against it. Absolutely not, they're wonderful. Um, but uh, like stippled uh, transitioned base coats between colors um, and then continuing to stipple on top of that to add more interest 
which allows mm-hmm. you to use pretty much any paint as well, which is something that people just don't realize, I think. And stippling can be done at any scale. Like people, the Golden Team was full of stippling this year. It's just done by people who are so unbelievably, um, you know, more talented than me that I can't even tell. Um, but it's a really good way to put something down and puts it down at the color that it is. You know, it's not diluted uh, nearly so much, but you still got that degree of control. And because it's not, you're not trying to put down a flat layer. So to answer part of your question, I definitely don't paint in the traditional Citadel way. It's not mm-hmm. in highlights. Um, so actually, if, if I could, if I could interrupt for a minute, yeah, for, for someone who might not be, someone listening who might not be familiar with what stippling is, how would you describe that uh, that technique? Poking, not stroking. Okay. So, um, yeah, you are you're going to take your brush, and if you've, I mean. It, it belittles it slightly, but just think of getting a blob of paint, putting it on your finger and just pressing it at a canvas. So, you know, imagine you had 10,000 fingers if you're using a high quality brush and you just pressed it at the canvas and you, you put down something. Um, you're going to get a higher degree of those in the middle of the poke from your brush and it will kind of fade out towards the edges, which is really important. Um, I often reference like the very old, I'm getting older now, so less and less people get this when I talk to new people, but the Microsoft Paint Spray Tool is the, sure. is the best comparison. Like the middle of the dot, opaque, and it's just going to fade out beautifully. And um, that fade is something that you can really use within your painting. So stippling is just poking your paint at your model with your brush, which like any other technique can be done incredibly well, incredibly finely, incredibly fast, incredibly slow, and also incredibly badly. Um, but it is a, a, a completely wonderful technique and one of the core things about it, uh, which is what prompted your question, I think, is that you're not trying to put down a flat coat. You're not just wiping paint on your model. Not that there's anything wrong with layering. You're not just wiping paint on your model until you've got a seamless flat base coat because you can just do that with an airbrush. Um, you're, you're poking it at it and you get a slightly non-uniform surface. And that, for a load of reasons, is a bit more organic and way more forgiving, so mm. much more forgiving. Um, like one of the favorite things to do in a demo, if people doubt this, is to get black paint and just paint a stripe down the model that I'm painting, which is normally going to be orange or turquoise or something fantastical, and then fix it. And it's surprisingly easy because you're not trying to, you know, you haven't put down a perfect seven layers of this one, then right. slightly less of this one, then this one, then this one. You've given an overall impression. Um, and then I'll finish off the model with dry brushing, which rather than poking at the model, you are stroking it very lightly. And the texture of the models, which these days is absolutely exquisite, especially on uh, CAD designed ones, because a human's gone over it, even though it's on a computer and they've just raised every lip to make washes behave better in the recesses. The the other side of that same coin is that it makes the raised areas better at picking up paint. So you're, you're gently stroking over it with a dry brushing and then your edges get picked up. and um, that's often followed by a wash for me, which is normally a custom wash. Sometimes it's just a Citadel shade. Sometimes it's their contrast mix with a medium or something like that. But I'm a real fan of finishing things off with a wash. Um, It sounds like a lot of steps, but you use the same brush pretty much all the way through. You work real fast. Your paint doesn't have time to dry on your palette. And it's very organic and quite forgiving. So I think part of what we've really tried to talk to people about with the channel is just Here's a lot of steps. You're going to go through them way faster than you think. You don't need to worry about getting them wrong, really. And by the end of it, you might be really surprised with what you've produced. So um, I paint in that way quite a lot. Yeah, it seems like a very forgiving technique on the whole. 
Absolutely, yeah. Mistakes take a while to fix, right? So if you can't make a mistake or if your mistakes are 10% of a mistake instead of 100% of a mistake, if you think about the opacity of the paint that you're putting down, you're in a pretty forgiving spot. Um, this is another reason why I um, I always struggle with people's obsessions with ratios. Like I, I get I get why people would want to know, but it really doesn't matter what you do on stage like three of a model out of seven um, with brush loads of paint which isn't that precise anyway even drops sure. aren't that precise in our industry yeah yeah like often it's just like aim for roughly this color and and that'll be, probably be grand no that's that's awesome um so you know you mentioned that there's a demo you can see and this this is the demo you can see on youtube for the uh, the series d brushes absolutely yeah um it's the demo that i feel i should have given you um it's a it's a shame that i didn't get to sit down and give you one in person but if you it's our most viewed video on the channel Great, just, i'll, I'll uh, link that in the show notes as well yeah, absolutely. It's just a complete beginner's guide to dry brushing. I would encourage anyone to stick to black and white because then you don't have to worry about color. It's really sensible. Um, and just grab a piece of terrain because it makes you care less and uh, and give it a go. It's an absolutely wonderful technique. And you really, really would be surprised with just how, how incredible a result you can get really fast. And if you're willing to slow that down a bit, um, which will still probably be faster than numerous other techniques, you can do some really, really nuts stuff with it. Yeah, I mean, Adepticon was was a buzz with talk of that of that that demo and that um, thing, and I was I was sad I didn't have time to get it myself. You could have um, been my like hundred and fifty second person or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and, and you, you keep talking about doing it for terrain to test stuff. Like you, you can do this this dry brushing technique to you know, very high quality on like you know a, a miniature, a proper miniature, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You just you just shrink the brushes and you slow down a bit. Um, some things are more helpful than others, like demons or things that are predominantly one texture. You do sure. the messiest, least controllable bit first, put that down, just like you would do if you were airbrushing. Um, and then you go in with the details after that. So like hyper-textured things that have the fewest possible different textures on. So like if it's a plague bearer, it's basically disgusting flesh. There's going to be some sores in that. You can highlight them afterwards. Um, bone, or it's like a weapon. So models like that are really, really helpful for it, or large unbroken sections like a cloak, if you want to stipple a cloak on a model separately to the rest of it. So I'm a fairly big fan of sub-assemblies for that reason. It just makes it a little bit easier. Oh, that makes that makes perfect sense. So tell me about the Series D brushes. You know, they're they're not they're not what most people used to think of as a dry brush, right? They're they're a little different from what I imagine people who aren't familiar are imagining. Yeah, absolutely. So the the dry brushes that people may know from Games Workshop or whatever, they are based on what is known as a flat in traditional art painting, which is exactly how it sounds. It's a spade-shaped brush. Um, and they will do one thing specifically really well, which is to if you um, if you to turn if you turn it so it's vertical, I'm awful at describing stuff like this. This is why I'm better in person. So you turn your brush so it's vertical and let's say you've got wood grain on the model in front of you and that's also vertical. You then take your brush and you flick it from left to right horizontally mm -hmm. and it will exactly pick out those wood grains you know by texture wonderfully and it'll do it really 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 well the moment you change the orientation of either the brush or the wood and you stop going exactly against the grain um you might get some smearing or some other stuff so we went for round brushes because they don't have an aspect they're just round um so you can go from any direction um with your brush and then at least one of your variables is kind of fixed. Um, also, they're more resilient because of a load of fairly boring stuff, but the hairs in them back up. 
the other hairs more readily than they do if your brush ends in the same way that a flat brush does. So um, you can use them from any angle. They hold more paint. They're more resilient. They've got a really high quantity of high quality fine hairs in there. Um, so they'll last for a very, very long time. They should, you'll find that your brushes break in rather than breaking, hopefully, with our mm -hmm. brushes. And they'll kind of shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink, but not splay until the day that you have to sadly retire them at literally like, you know, a quarter of the length that they were or something sure. like that. And uh, so when you load them with paint, do you, do you just sort of just, just touch the paint with it or do you put, do you load it like a normal brush or how, how does that work? So you, you kind of sneak it on from the edge. Um, you don't ever need to saturate. So what kills normal brushes is the capillary uh, action of paint going from the tip of your brush, which is where the action happens right down into the ferrule, which is the metal right. bit. And you, you put water with your paint. So toothing coats, blah, blah, blah. You cannot avoid that. That is part of yeah. nature painting. You know, whether you're, you're glazing or not, you should be diluting your paint. It's designed for it, and you'll get better results doing so. Um, with dry brushing, you don't really need to do that, but you're still using paint that was designed to be wet. So we, the way that we worked it out, or I worked out and was in, important in how I developed them, was to sneak paint onto your brush from the edge, never just plowing your brush in. That's awful. That's awful with any brush. Sure, yeah. You really don't need to do it with a dry brush. So you can sneak some in from your palette. I put it on lines, so dropper bottles are helpful for putting the lines on your palette. You can sneak it from the edge. Um, and then throughout the technique, um, we've got what we call the dampening pad, which is a little foam pot that you put a specific amount of water in, which is one drop off the back of whatever brush you're using. If the brush is bigger, the drop will be bigger. If the brush is smaller, the drop will be smaller and that the aim is to not have dry bristles you don't want them wet you're not saturating okay. them at all um but that will mix with your paint and your paint has been designed to be diluted like 50 50 with water if you don't do that and if you then take it to something that is porous like a paper towel which is the classic the paper towel is going to pull more medium which is like the gloopy body of the paint out than it is the pigment which is the color which is basically like ground up chalk so it's not any surprise or it shouldn't be any surprise when your dry brush ends up chalky if you pulled out you didn't add any moisture in that the paint's designed to be used with and then you pulled out the, the small amount of moisture that could be pulled out separately right. from the paint itself into a paper towel which is maybe even you know exiting fibers onto your brush as well yeah yeah it's fluffy so um yeah the, the technique really really centers around that it's called dry brushing we can't change that we're far too late yeah. Far too late in the game, but your dry brush shouldn't be dry, and um, that unlocks uh, a host of wonderful stuff like basically edge highlighting, um, not quite as you know solidly or like fat or consistent with the same amount of paint, but you can hit edges of feathers just beautifully. Yeah. Um, you know, ripples in flesh, great unclean ones, a perfect example. I love painting them, it's just like this wonderful blob of texture, yeah. You can do such amazing stuff. You can pull out the wrinkles on the new gargants. You can you can literally just happily, happily like uh, dry brush away your model, and then you you've picked out all of the skin texture that's been sculpted on there in the place where other techniques wouldn't. And um, yeah, it's only dry brushing that really lets you paint according to texture. But um, we went out there to try and stop people from doing it in a way that allowed other people to talk about it in a disparaging way. You know, yeah, a beginner yeah. technique or whatever. It's just a technique. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's great hearing you talk about the specifics of, you know, adding a little bit of moisture to your dry brushing because, you know, historically back in the nineties, you know, in, in the, in the, in the, the dark ages, like when I started painting <laughs> miniatures, 
Uh, you know, dry brushing was a, a popular technique for beginners, but it was really sneered at by anybody doing any kind of serious painting because inevitably, um, when you dry brush, as you were describing, you're getting, you're adding no moisture and, you know, sucking all the moisture out of the paint. So you have this very chalky, dusty look, which occasionally is quite cool on the right miniature, right? Like there's a, there's a place yeah, for like that, on, but, um, on bases or terrain in particular. And that's yeah. kind of where it got primarily used really as a result. Yeah. But you know, if you were a new painter, you know, you, if the first time you dry brushed, you know, the, the, the chain mail on your armor, you were like, Oh, it's like magic. Right. So I, oh, I think it's so quite good. cool to see, Absolutely. um, you guys sort of revitalizing dry brushing is a very, um, you know, legitimate technique. Yeah, I mean, there's people, there's there's artists out there who do finger painting on a level that blows my mind, right? But painting with fingers is for children. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's just. It's just like it's an artistic, creative hobby, and whatever route someone uses to get to an end result that they're happy with that they think looks cool is absolutely great. You know, whether that is an airbrush or stippling or washing or contrast or dry brushing, they're just all things you have in your arsenal. And for me, the like the, the holy trinity for speed, at least, is airbrush, dry brush, wash being combined because then you've got a volumetric technique with the um, with the airbrushing and it just unlocks some other stuff that's inc incredibly fast. You've got a technique that pulls uh, different shades of stuff in the recesses being washing. And then you've got the, the thing that holds hands with that complements it on the other side the dry brushing which will steadily add layers to the raised areas according to the pressure and the amount of paint on the brush and stuff like that um so that's that's why that cornerstone of mine became my speed painting technique because you've got three separate things that do separate jobs and combined you can just have them all hold hands and they each do the bit that they're the most efficient at but no more um so kind of perfecting that could take a lifetime but it's really powerful yeah, I, I've actually heard. Anybody, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about using those three techniques in tandem, or at least not in the way that you just described. And hearing, hearing the way they sort of complement each other is really fascinating. Do, oh, do you have a background in fine art, sir? It's 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 just absolute cheating. When you get it right and you've got your ratios right and it's on the yeah. right model, my god, it's just absolutely ridiculous. You, you oh, just feel sure. like you know, is that it? Which is always the most yeah. wonderful thing to hear <laughs> in a in like a demo. So I was like, oh, is that it? I'm like, yeah. Oh great! So, I'm gonna I'm gonna go home and just replicate that. Wonderful, fill your boots, have fun. No, I, I'm excited to to try it out myself. But uh, do do you have a background in fine arts or anything? How do, how did you sort of come up with these approaches in the first place? Oh no, not at all. And I'm a yeah. really slow learner at everything. Um, I I used dips when I started painting. Oh wow! Um, I used yeah like the, the army paint those dips. Yeah, yeah. Um, I learned using those, and I used spray cans because I didn't have an airbrush. And uh, my, that was it. I'd, I'd put a color down that was as solid and bright as possible, a bit, a little bit brighter than it should be because the dip was going to dull it down. Uh -huh. um, and then I'd spray another color from angles above if I could get away with it. Um, then dry brush it, uh, which is something that I started. I started it after the dip, and then I realized you could do it before the dip and have the dip kind of pull everything together, which is how I use washes now. Um, and just kind of muddled my way through until... I realized that I could, uh, everything was an antidote to something else, right? So when I wasn't dry brushing as well, or when you're going fast, you can end up with something looking chalky. So if you drop a wash over it, that pulls the saturation up and it also homogenizes the entire surface. So what we were talking about, about using different paint brands, if you put a wash at the end of something, this is one of the things that people don't necessarily think of in, in full terms. Like if you've got a model that is all right, and the reason it looks all right is you painted it quite well, but it's got a load of different finishes on it. The moment you wash the entire thing, which has a bad rep and really shouldn't do, um, you just pull the coherency of that model together right, like 
just a, in a snapshot in one go perfectly. And all of your model is now cohesive, both in, let's say you used a sepia while she's Griffin sepia, you've made it all holistically kind of tie together a little bit. And if you considered your colors beforehand, even better. Um, but the entire module model is the same shininess or finish all over. And that just makes things look better. People underuse varnishes for this. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that kind of all over technique, that was an antidote to the dry brushing. And then the spray cans were the fastest way to get it down. So my technique hasn't actually changed that much. I've just changed the tools and the ways that I get there as fast as possible, or maybe a little bit more neatly than I used to when I was using spray cans or stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about um, that, that sort of final wash, because I think until fairly recently, that was just a, not a thing that was done. No. Um, I remember, you know, when, when I was learning how to paint in the 90s, you know, all the guys were sort of like, you know, you lay down your base coat, and then you lay down your wash, and then you highlight on top of that, and then you yeah. know, your, your highlights go up and brighter and brighter and brighter, and then when it's as bright as it can be, you're done. Um, and, you know, that's just sort of ingrained in my brain to a certain degree as to how I paint. I think I'll probably never fully get away from it. But um, a few years ago, I was I was starting to mess with oil paints for the first time um, yeah. in miniatures painting. And what I realized was, you know, I came to the same, you know, sort of conclusion that you did as far as that, that final oil wash to marry everything together. Because I have, you know, mostly acrylic paints and some oil aspects, but the, but washing the whole thing in a very thin, very dilute oil wash at the end would, 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 would marry all those textures and colors not colors, but tones together. And it, it, was, it, it really made it all, you know, uh, look. You got to look. tickle your 90s love for uh, black climbing as well, which still looks damn effective. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah, is, exactly. Like, there is just no way to do that as fast as an oil wash. There's nothing nope. out there is that good. And um, if you've got the right colors next to that and it separates things beautifully, it's still an incredibly powerful technique. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Byron. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, Things like to talk about besides the for, for your uh, your cabinet Kickstarter. Like I said, the show notes are in the uh, the in the. Let me start that one over again. <laughs> uh, Byron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm really excited to see the success you're having on the Kickstarter. Uh, again, if you're listening, the show notes will have a link to that. But is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about uh, what what you guys got going on? Um, anyone who's backed the campaign, thank you so much. We're hugely excited to bring these out. Um, if you haven't checked it out and you go there and you have any questions, uh, we're all is pop it down on any of the places that you'll see us on social media, on the campaign itself, on YouTube. Um, and if I didn't describe any of the paying stuff, um, you're more than welcome to ask questions about that as well. We're all is like we're um, we're in this for the love of the hobby and trying to elevate it. So uh, it's an absolute pleasure anytime anyone expresses interest and we're always happy to, uh, to take the time to answer it to the best of our abilities. The Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. Mm-hmm.